0: Well, good afternoon to you. Uh, This is Alan Seymour, your host, Future of Sport, on the All In Sports Talk platform. Delighted today to welcome uh, Sachin Nankrani, um, sports broadcaster, journalist, uh, credits with The Guardian and Anfield Index, amongst others. I want to begin, Sachin, by just asking you, why Liverpool? Why Liverpool FC?
1: Yeah, well, like uh, a lot of people, perhaps I got uh, I started supporting the team because my dad did. Um, I got to football when I was was, eight or nine years old in the late eighties, and I remember there was a kid at school. I remember asking a kid at school, you know, who should I support? Because I heard that that's the thing you do if you like football, you support a team, and um, it was a real sliding doors moment because I remember him saying, "You support the team your dad does."
0: Well, sorry about that. I think we just had a little slight weather techno issue there. Beginning, Sachin, let's talk about why Liverpool FC.
1: Yeah, so like a lot of people, I guess, I started supporting Liverpool because my, my dad did. Uh, I got into football when I was about seven or eight years old in the late 80s. And I remember asking a fellow boy in school who, who I should support because that was a, I sort of realised if you get into football, that's the type of thing you do, support a team. And he said, and I remember him saying... Uh, clearly, you support who your dad does. So I went home, asked my dad who he <laughs> supported. He said Liverpool,
0: and the reason he supports Liverpool is because he was um, part of the Asian community that grew up in Kenya. He grew up in Kenya, in Mombasa specifically,
1: um, in the '60s. And um, when he was growing up, he actually worked as a mechanic out there, and there was an amateur football team called Liverpool. He played in red, and he, he sort of started following them on a casual level. Um, came to England with the rest of the family in the early 70s and found out that there was an actual English Liverpool and that the Kenyan team was probably named after them. So he switched his allegiances to them and you know, the rest is history.
0: I mean, it, it's a great little intro, that actually, and I, I, and I think you've touched a lot of... Um, Senses there almost the sporting senses the maybe to an extent some of the realities in how uh, sports fans grow up family wise or inherited almost but there's a lot lot more that we can discuss on that issue uh, as today's uh, this afternoon's interview unfolds. I also want to uh, use as a touch point to begin with Sachin uh, renowned sports. Uh, podcaster and, and, and journalist, uh, particularly on The Guardian now. So, again, maybe just go back in time and tell us how your career uh, 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 and your starting point with uh, wherever it was and ending up at The Guardian.
1: Yeah, so I, um, I did a postgraduate diploma in newspaper journalism in, in London in 2000. Well, I started it. it was a one-year course at in the autumn of 2002. I graduated in the summer of 2003, uh, and I I always wanted to be a sports journalist, but I found it very hard to get into the industry, so um, I actually started off as a local journalist for my, uh, or news journalist, I should say, for my local paper in in North London. I was there for a couple of years, I then moved to um, another couple of papers, and it was while I was the news editor of the Ealing Gazette, which is a newspaper in West London, um, that I found out the Guardian had a trainee sports scheme. Actually, a former colleague of mine, a friend of mine from my from my original paper, The Harrow Observer, um, told me she, she'd heard about it. I had no idea it existed, and she'd seen an advert for it. So uh, basically, it was a the Guardian take somebody on every year um, and, and take them on to their sports desk, give them a year contract, and then the idea is that someone else comes the following year. So um, I applied. This would have been sort of mid-late... Um, sorry mid-2007 probably in the spring
0: yeah.
1: um, didn't hear anything for a few months so I thought presumably hadn't got it and then I got a call um, around August I think it was saying they'd like me to come in for an interview and I had a couple of interviews and then I got it which was great and I was, um, I started Guardian in the autumn of 2007 and I was and I was thrown straight into it covering covering of Premier League games by the second or third week interviews, features, all sorts of things and I absolutely loved it and then my year ended and that, in theory, should have been it. They sort of throw you out into the big, bad world. But um, I did pretty well. So they, they, asked, they asked if I'd like to stay on with a staff contract. And I jumped at the chance. Um, but that then didn't mean I was going to be writing too much because, obviously, the next trainee then starts. So mm. I was mainly in the office. Uh, but what helped me somewhat is that trainee ended up being the penult- uh, so the last ever trainee. I was a penultimate trainee because they shut the scheme down So uh, because of cutbacks. So... He left, uh, I was still there so that allowed me to, to get back into writing a bit and, and basically now, sort of 10 and a bit years on I mainly still work in the office but I work on the commissioning desk so editing, copy, managing the writers coming up with ideas but I also write pretty regularly I cover games most weekends and then and, and do various other bits and bobs when you know, whenever I'm asked or whether I've got the time to to
0: do something. I mean, obviously, Sachin, I, I, I'm really fascinated by your story, and I know my listeners will be on a, a lot of the shared um, partnerships or shared, probably, colleagues, associations, and associates we have. But let's, let me, if I can, just talk a little bit about The Guardian, a respected newspaper. But as a journalist, uh, I mean, what's your perception, considerations at the moment, uh, particularly in sport where? You know, maybe with social media and its gathering momentum uh, over the last few years and maybe the changing landscape of communications, what do you fundamentally see as the role now uh, that journalists and newspapers like yourselves have, particularly in the sports domains? Uh, Well, I
1: think it's a very... Confused and certainly a very changing time for, for sports journalism. Okay. I think yeah. for a long time there was an established order, the mainstream press, which the Guardian is, is very much part of, kind of rules really. And, and that's where all the access came through. That's where most people got their information. But the, the industry is, is fragmenting now incredibly, you know, uh, the digital boom, if you like. Um, means there are a lot more uh, websites out there covering sport, a lot more outlets. Uh, It's obviously far more global and international now. I certainly see it when I go into press rooms at at football grounds. You know, there's journalists from from all all sorts of um, outlets now, as before, you know, it'd mainly just be from the main papers, the main radio stations, the main TV stations. uh, And I think everyone's trying to adapt and adjust, and certainly at the Guardian, I mean, our philosophy has been... um, our sort of mantra, if you like, is, is digital first, That that has been the case for a long time right. now, and it's a case of thinking about the website first and the newspaper second, which for someone who's a bit of a traditionalist like me was initially hard Okay. to, hard to get my head around, but now um, it's just kind of accepted, that's the way it works. Now you think about the internet, what works online, and, and there's various strategies for that, and Yes, I think it's a changing landscape. It's really hard to pinpoint now, probably perhaps no best in, in a decade's time. I mean, to sound quite negative about things slightly, yeah. I don't think it will be in newspapers in, in 10 years' time. I just think um, we've had a relaunch of the guide and we've relaunched the paper. We've gone to a tabloid, a tabloid format. Yeah. Uh, it does look very nice. It's very striking, but I think ultimately we're fighting a losing battle and And I think Clint will will probably die in, as I
0: said, 10 or 15 years' time. I I mean, I, I, like yourself, I I mean, I'm a digital native, not a digital native, a digital convert, probably, and, you know, I've accepted it, I've uh, embraced it, And and to be brutally honest, it's been an absolute um, magnificent lever for me in doing lots of the things I want to do, both in sport, education, communication, etc. But there's still a part of me that says the journalist, uh, the informed opinion, the critical discussion still must Prosper and and how maybe therefore do you uh, you know kind of reconcile that against the backdrop of we content creation for want of a better expression or you know the fans' voice or everybody appears to be an, a, a, an expert these days. Do you have any particularly um, striking pers- uh, you know perceptions on that kind of approach, Sachin? Yeah, well, I
1: think the, the thing, I think the problem we've got at the moment is is a real blurred landscape in terms of what is good content yeah. and what is bad content and i think what's absolutely vital is even with the death of print and all those sort of things that the journalism that is done at the highest level if you like is still funded and maintained and i think certainly the guardian that's the case I and mean, we've done some incredible stuff yeah. uh, over the last 18 months two years i mean danny taylor our chief football writer absolutely you know, that's Incredible stuff with the Barry Bennell case, you know, yeah. that sort of sexual abuse in football, the Eddie Luco story, yeah. um, and, you know, David Connolly Hillsborough, etc., etc. So, as long as that journalism exists, that's great. My, I think my fear is that we are entering this kind of clickbait era where it's about getting hits online, it's about people viewing your work more than actually appreciating it. And I think we've seen with certain outlets, uh, the Mail Online is probably the best example where I think they're. You know, there's a real... I mean, they've got some fantastic journalists there. I think it's only print. They've got high-quality journalists. But online, it's often, you know, just putting anything up as long as it's got the right words in the headline or the right picture, so people click on it. And that is a fear that people, you know, journalism in general might slide down that way. And in terms of the fan...
0: okay, Sachin, you're talking about the fan. Fans media. Let's, Let's just continue there.
1: Yeah, um... In terms of fan media, yeah, there's some there's excellent fan media out there. I mean, I, I'm involved in it with Danfield Index, you know, which is a fantastic site in terms of podcasts and and content. And, and there's other there's others out there representing other football clubs and, and football in general, other sports in general as well. But I think equally as well, you can see a lot of bad stuff there as well, very partisan, low quality content as well, which can get thrown into the mix. So, yeah, as I say, it's a very blurred, confused landscape at the moment. I think it's absolutely crucial going forward. It doesn't matter if print dies, if, if newspapers don't exist, as long as the quality of journalism you, you see in print from places like The Guardian, like The Times, like The Telegraph exists, and I think that's, that's the main thing going forward. I,
0: I think, Satin, you've absolutely nailed it there, absolutely nailed it, because, you know, we've touched already on uh, different platforms, and there will always be different platforms, you know, Uh, I started with vinyl, moved to CDs, then online, and now uh, I've resurrected my vinyl collection. You know, it doesn't really matter. The platforms will change, but the platforms need to be used effectively. And I totally agree as well. We live in an attention or an attentive economy, as it's often called, you know, and the first-to-market principle and getting something out there, and it's not good enough, in my opinion, just to put a headline for sensationalism that has no bearing on what the informed article or informed content should all be about so i'm really pleased that we've kind of um, you know um, ha- had some really good touch points on that you talk about the anfield index there you know i have my own podcast this is part of it i also do quite a bit with uh, w- w- with various other outlets tell me why you think that sports podcasts seem to be uh, very much in vogue and i think they're doing a great job and maybe uh, how do you see sports podcasts developing over the next decade and maybe are they complementary or as another form uh, of, of what sports journalists do yeah
1: there's definitely a boom in sports podcasts i mean I, i've got two or three on the go at any one time and um, in terms of why they're so successful i think first of all lots of well not a lot of them but there's a decent number of them which are very good simple as that the yep. quality the the variety is excellent i think when we live in a Society where people certainly appear to be busier, don't have the time, or certainly just maybe have the desire to, let's say, sit down and read a newspaper or or, or read anything at length or watch anything at length. So, the great thing about podcasts is you can listen to it as you move. You know, I listen to a podcast pretty much every morning when I'm going into work. You know, I can listen to one when I'm I'm cleaning the, you know, the the, the bathroom or or doing something else. So, it allows you to take in content while also um, while also doing other things. So, I think that's that's part of the reason. Um, I mean, as things stand, I think they'll just expand and grow. But, I mean, it's a very competitive field as well. If you take Liverpool, for instance, there's enormous amount of social uh, media content, fan-created me- fan content, Anfield Index, obviously the Anfield Wrap, um, this is Anfield Men TV, just to name four. Yeah. So, I think it can get oversaturated, and I think there's some that just won't take off unless they've got something very unique to offer. Um, but at the moment, it just seems to be a bit of a boom industry. the street, certainly for those that can do it very well, such as Anfield Index.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and, and I always, I mean, I come from obviously a, a strong education background, clearly, yeah, because that's been a big part of my life. But I'm also... Um, Very much involved in business marketing. Uh, I've worked in commercial radio and I see the vibes coming out where, you know, competition is very good and competition needs. And and, and I also share the view that sharing amongst those is, is much better necessarily, rather than um, perhaps, and I think the tendency today is people don't value criticism sometimes, and you get this perspective, you know, what are your views for example on quite a lot of the Liverpool supporters or in some cases, I'm going to say this alleged Liverpool supporters using social media just to uh, get off on one, or you know, um, to abuse players in some cases, or make suggestions that Klopp or FSG uh, you know, are not doing a good job I mean everyone's entitled to, critique, to critically have an opinion etc etc but not at the expense of maybe the great traditions of a football club like Liverpool for example so what are some of your views or comments perhaps on some of those themes that I've suggested Satchin
1: Yeah, well, I try and stay clear of it to be honest. I see it a lot, and I mean, I'm quite, I'm very active on Twitter, and and I see people commenting about other Liverpool sports saying, you know, I can't believe people are getting angry about this or that, I can't believe people are calling the clock to be sacked or whatever. Um, I seem to follow the people who follow the idiots. I don't follow the idiots myself because I don't, I rarely see those comments. And I think, in many ways, I don't know whether the fan base has significantly changed uh, over the years. I think. The main huge significant difference now is that social media gives people a platform to say the things which perhaps previously they said in the privacy of their own home or yeah. in the privacy of the pub. Um, there's always been people there whose views you think are just crazy, don't agree with them, and we just they just they've now got um, a platform to speak now. So I mean, obviously, you know, I like to think I'm quite a um, level-headed football supporter. I don't get too excited, but I don't get too negative either but you know life is full of extremes and yeah I, I certainly just my sort of philosophy or my my policy i should say is just to is to ignore it and and surround myself with people who i think are also you know not necessarily agree with me all the time because people disagree but people who are sort of rational in their thoughts at least
0: I, I mean what i want to do now if i may i i think we've kind of segued nicely into to, to what i want to do in the second part of uh, this interview, conversation more than an interview it's actually in today it's just talk about the broader aspects of maybe communication maybe some of the, the aspects why you got into uh, journalism uh, in, in, in the first place uh, do you see parallels in reporting on sport, for example, to reporting on anything to do with society or social or, or, or maybe some of the issues currently that obviously affect everybody, whether you're a sports fan or, or, or whether you're just, a, a, as it were, a, a member of any given society? What are your broader perspectives on the role of journalism in some or all of those uh, particular considerations, Sachin?
1: Um, well, I think sport has different layers. I think there is, you could argue, the frivolous layer, which is purely just, you know, reporting on the events themselves, yeah. which, you know, we love sport, we're passionate about sport, you know, football in particular, but essentially it's just a game. You know, if I go and cover a match at the weekend, it's just a game. Uh, and, you know, it's entertainment, essentially. But I think, as as, as we spoke about earlier, the stuff, you know, Danny Taylor's done, David Conn's done, and, and journalists, other newspapers and other outlets have done, it can be massively important. I mean, the sexual abuse scandal, the football, is no worse or, you know, less graphic than it is in, you know, in, in society in general when you have these, you know, horrendous examples. So, you know, sport is a microcosm of society and it, and it can often reflect that as well. I think the one thing very different in sports well certainly specifically football journalism
0: and it's what we were just uh, perhaps speaking about just now yeah. is a tribalism and,
1: and the way that people get so furious and angry if their, their sports team or their sports idol is attacked in, in, not attacked even but just criticised in a way that is absolutely fair and absolutely valid but people then you know, get on your back and accuse you of having agendas and conspiracy theories in a way that I don't think would be the case if you were writing you know Almost about any other sport, but almost about any other industry. And if I was a film critic and I said a film was not very good, I don't think I'd have people saying, "Oh, you've got a agenda against that director or that actress or that actor or that producer." But if I write a negative article about, I don't know, let's just say Jose Mourinho, then yeah. I might have Manchester United fans accusing me of having a agenda against their club or Mourinho particularly. And I don't like that aspect of of the way sports journalism is received. I think it's a real, it's of football journalism specifically of how it's received. I think it's a real shame.
0: I mean you've touched on something that is very very difficult sometimes, very sensitive it's sometimes very difficult to square off or uh, kind of in this vacuum that's almost created and and in some cases people hide behind it or in others people just generally use it as a machine to 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 literally abuse people on social media but there is a balance and I think some of the points you've made, you know I can have a, a debate or I can have a discussion via Twitter, it's not the end game it's the starting point and with most of the people that I can still engage with I can do that very readily, but it is as you've just said, in sport for some perverse reason or for some maybe the tribal, the fanaticism the, the kind of um, fraught in some cases but maybe very much a stubborn and, 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 a, and a kind of stereotypical standpoint that people take, that they can't be wrong and, and, and they wouldn't have it in any other way. But, you know, I'm, I'm talking at the moment, you know, just as, a, as, a, as an argument, maybe, you know, the, the merits or demerits of university lecturers, for example, going on strike. Now, whatever my perspectives are on that... <laughs> Uh, and I could have a view, but if I question somebody who is a colleague of mine, or is online, and say, you know, why are you striking? The inferred criticism is it of, you know, well, um, you know, we need to, or we're uh, we're able to, and then an agenda might come back when, you know, for some reason, a journalist might uh, put something out there about... Uh, you know, some of the leaders of the movement and make a suggestion that, you know, it doesn't sit comfortably with what they're actually, you know, purporting to strike for. So the balance is very important. How do you deal in your role at The Guardian with some of the more subjective or some, some of those kind of very contentious issues, Satchin? Um, well, I...
1: So it's obviously, able to talk about sport—that's the department I work in. I think it's—it's it's just a judgment call, you know, from you know the top of whether we feel, you know, that's a story we really want to pursue or that's that's um, something we want to take on. Um, I mean, obviously, all the stuff Danny's done has been has been fully supported, and fully backed. Because they're hugely important, um, and, and obviously, all the stuff—just you know, to mention him again as well, David Conn and, and, and what have you. And I think our writers are giving quite a lot of license there's not sort of firm rules in, of saying no, this is the type of thing we do okay. we do write about this is the type of stuff we don't write about it's uh, you know if a writer wants to do something they're generally encouraged and as long as you know, legally there's no issues and morally obviously there's no issues then, then they're absolutely given all the backing they want um, to do stuff and um, you know, in terms of criticism, it comes, you know, certainly The Guardian, because we're very open, we have comments yeah. open on a lot of stories, so, you know, the abuse as you know, below the line, as it's referred to, is just, <laughs> I find it nauseating, to be honest, but that's the way we are, we're trying to be an open industry, or an open to an organisation, say, and allow people to comment on articles, and obviously it comes in anyway from Twitter and Facebook, what have you, so... I think it's a case of staying strong in front of that. I mean, I know, you know some journalists say I, I never read comments underneath my story because you know, they just find it upsetting. Others don't want to be swayed by comments because sometimes you might suddenly start writing hoping not to get bad comments and that, that is how you should operate, you should you know, operate from a from a position of truth. But, um, yeah, it's it's just the era we live in and, and, you know, you've just got to write and do what you believe and then you know, sort of suffer the consequences if you like.
0: I mean I think you've answered and, and, and it's not an answer it's just a comment and, and again the openness and the frankness and the, the need to have these kind of discussions two way open ended and, and, and part of my mantra part of my brief as both an educator and, and as a communicator in sport and in other areas as well um, I'm very grateful that I can discuss these issues and use my future of sport and the all in sports sport sort platform I've got and I'm sure you're all the same I know you are both with your Guardian reporting and what, what you've done on uh, on Anfield Index and, and, and other platforms. Let's kind of just maybe put some closure and, and, and segue into some final summations and com- commentaries here, if I may, Satchit. You started off beginning of 2000 um, at a local newspaper, uh, and, and now you're moving up that... Um, whatever ladder or whatever career progression you're making do you find that some of the early lessons that you took on board uh, have not only influenced you and affected you but have been very helpful and what would necessarily be your kind of uh, advice going forward to maybe some of my sports students who are looking to get into to journalism or communications yeah well in terms of Early lessons, I think the two things
1: I always strive for, always will strive for, is accuracy and balance. I always, you know, try and be correct in everything I do, and if I make a mistake, then you know I'm my biggest critic. And in terms of balance as well, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a commentator, if you like. I don't like comment pieces. I tend to do sort of features, or, or you know, um, uh, yeah, sort of largely sort of features or you know reports and stuff, and, and I always try and. Be as balanced as I can, and and I think that comes from my news background. When you write those articles, you know you've got to be balanced. You know, if you give one side, you've got to give the other side. So that's that's formed the way I I operate as a sports journalist as well. Um, To give advice to young sports journalists, I think to be negative, but then also to be positive. I think the one thing I'd say is, I think anyone who's coming, you know, who wants to be a a sports journalist now, they they pretty much have to give up on the dream of being a, a sports writer for a mainstream. Outlet such as the Guardian, because the industry is shrinking at that, at that end of at that end of it, and basically places like the Guardian I know for a fact are just aren't hiring anymore.
0: Okay,
1: um, huge because of huge cutbacks and, and what have you. So, you know, somebody wants to be the next chief football writer for the Guardian or the Times, it's very very unlikely they're going to be able to achieve that. However. Two other things, which you know, I really would try and push on a positive level. The first thing is within the mainstream industry, there's there's still other options. You know, as I'm mainly office based, I get a lot of satisfaction out of doing that. Being an editor, being a night editor, um, could also you know, working on the commissioning desk. You could also be a sub editor, you know, someone who, who works on. You know, reading copy and putting headlines and, and picture captions and stuff, and that can be very rewarding. And also, because the industry is getting bigger and expanding, there's options elsewhere. You know, you could go work for a, a smallish football website, which then could then grow and become something very influential. And you know, you've been in there at the starting point, or, or even quite a developed sporting, you know, football sport website could take people on as well because you know they're, they're in a position of close, which perhaps isn't the case for for the mainstream media. So. There are negatives where we are at the moment at the mainstream level. I think it's a very uncertain you know, time and, and it's generally shrinking. But journalism in general, sports in general, is expanding, is becoming an intriguing, exciting place. So there are options there as well. And i, I just say to anyone who's getting into the industry, keep an open mind and see what's out there and explore the opportunities. And you might come across something very exciting.
0: I mean, I love the idea of keep an open mind. You know, I, I, I've had a great career, I don't mind putting that point of view forward because of the very nature of some of the touch points and some of the people and some of the excitement and, 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 and really the thrill of the journey. But it's a journey that, by and large, I've been very open about and look for opportunities, never be afraid uh, you know, maybe to take a few risks along the way, always look at future and open opportunities as, uh, as they exist. And I want to kind of close maybe on something relating to that. The, uh, I like the idea of, of, of the mantra at the Guardian, digital first. You know, and and I'm currently writing a textbook on uh, digital sport marketing, so I'm a big advocate of digital, but not at the expense of, you know, meeting people face-to-face, having open discussions in lots of other different, um, using different, you know, many other different um, processes, if you like, to get to your um, targeted audience or your targeted objectives. Where do you see the future? Is it just going to be digital? or what are your kind of uh, aspirations or anticipations um, for the future of something like uh, you know, sports communication, shall we say?:
1: um, I think there's going to be a lot more social engagement, I think, um, in terms of perhaps uh, you know, just reaching regarding already reaching out to readers in terms of allowing them to maybe dictate to some extent what they want to right. see um, yeah. which i don't you know can be good can be bad it's obviously really good to try and get outside ideas and maybe tailor your your content to, to to the readers but equally as i said i think you've just got to do what you believe as well so you shouldn't pander too much to to readers um yeah i think video is actually going to become an increasingly important thing it's, it, our video department's got bigger over the last few years video has become far more influential on our website so i think that's definitely a, a stronger element as well and I just it's like I said it's a very uncertain time I do think print will die out in the next decade or so and um, yeah that's just, that'll be a sad turn of events for someone like me who trained as a print journalist but I think obviously the options you know online are great as well the, the way you can combine video and words and graphics and images can create some beautiful content really ripping and Captivate content so I think it's, uh, it's an uncertain time but it's also an intriguing exciting time as well and I think the main thing is the, the principles that underpin good journalism strong important socially important journalism uh, that we've spoken about here is, is maintained and uh, you know, I like to think certainly the Guardian that will be the case
0: uh, I mean I couldn't think of a better sentiment or a better uh, considered viewpoint than the one that you've just left uh, with me and my audience for the show it's been a great pleasure as always Satchin, to talk to you this afternoon many thanks for all of the content that we've delivered both uh, to each other almost here in the interview today but more importantly to our audience out there just a final shout out how people can contact you Sachin, and then we'll close off today's interview
1: yeah, so um, Twitter is uh, the main sort of social media platform that I, that I operate on, if you like. So, at Sachin the SachinTheCrime is my Twitter handle. And I can find my work on The Guardian and I do a uh, podcast for the Anfield Index as well.
0: Brilliant, Sachin. Take care. Give a special shout-out, as always, to the Red Men. I think uh, our next game, <laughs> fantastically as well, the return of Rafa to Anfield. Always welcome back uh, and give them a shout-out at the weekend. Thanks, Sachin. It will do.
1: Pleasure. Thanks, Alan.
0: Cheers. Bye.